How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 135 of X Last, where, by popular request, we are continuing our look at the recently ended Juggernaut miniseries here. And, uh, you know, a funny thing happened to me today while I was writing today's script. I get to a little bit at the end of the synopsis where I talk about what we're going to be talking about next episode. And since there were two issues of Juggernaut that came out during our little uh, X of Tens uh, endeavor, I figured I'd cover them both in a row. So today, Juggernaut number two. Next episode, Juggernaut number three. And then I realized that I did not own Juggernaut number three. And, uh, well, you figure, what's the big deal? You know, you run out to the comic shop, you pick up Juggernaut number three. No big deal. Well, I, uh, I'm a little nervous to look at the sales figures for this Juggernaut uh, miniseries because uh, none of my local shops... Had it in stock, and in fact, a few of them told me that they didn't even order any copies for the wall. So the only way you were getting an issue of Juggernaut outside of the first issue, I guess, would be to put it on a pull list well in advance so the comic shop would order it. So uh, I don't know how many people are reading this. I don't know how well it did in the sales, but I have a sneaking suspicion it didn't do great. Uh, long story, a little less long, I wound up putting 95 miles on my car today, driving all the way across the Valley of the Sun to, uh, to procure a copy of Juggernaut number three. So, we will be covering Juggernaut number three next episode, but, uh, boy, I wasn't expecting it to be such a, uh, such a difficult, uh, little trial in order to track this sucker down, but... It is in hand, and uh, we will be getting to it, of course. Now, today is Juggernaut number two, and uh, if you're familiar with the cover of this issue, you'll see that the Hulk is featured prominently on it. So, just like last episode when we talked about the Fantastic Four, this gives me an opportunity to talk to you all about my life and times as a fan of the Hulk. And uh, my story might be a little bit, uh, well, not unique in the sense that uh, it's anything special, but... I think it might be unique as to just sort of being against what uh, what you, folks usually say about the Incredible Hulk and how they discovered it and when they fell in love with it. I came into Hulk fandom after Peter David left. I didn't have anything wrong with Peter David. In fact, he's one of my favorite writers. But I, I just never thought the Hulk was that interesting a character or a concept that it would be something that I would follow. Of course, I had a few smattering of, ep- of issues throughout my collection. It's just one of those things that kind of happens if you see a, uh, 
a guest star on the cover, you might pick it up. If it ties into something that you might be interested in, you might pick it up. So I had a handful of the Peter David run, very, very slight handful. Um, I wouldn't actually buy Hulk comics, like, on purpose until the relaunch, the uh, ill-fated John Byrne re- relaunch there. And I didn't pick up all the issues of that. I just picked up a couple. I, you know, there was a, uh, a very uh, notable... Uh, Wolverine and Hulk story Right after Wolverine got his adamantium back That one was a pretty big deal I remember grabbing that because, you know I'm an X-Men completionist I I did grab the first couple of issues of the Burn Run Didn't really do much for me And I wouldn't come back and I wouldn't buy the Hulk in earnest Until uh, early in the Jemis Casada era Where they put Bruce Jones on the book It was Bruce Jones and John Romita Jr. And it was a very, very different take on what I expected out of the Incredible Hulk In that It wasn't like a uh, A punchy punchy story It wasn't a monster story It was a uh, it was a Sort of a spy thriller It was basically, you know Ripped right out of The Fugitive You had Bruce Banner on the run You had uh, these odd guests and Who may or may not be someone That we should be familiar with It was really, really well done and I just totally fell for it um, Of course, Peter David would return to the book after that And sort of retcon it all the way Which is kind of a bummer But for the time that it was running It, it did overstay its welcome The Bruce Jones stuff It did. The worm definitely did turn on it And uh, I believe it was a story with the abomination Where it, it had gone back into something that I wasn't terribly interested in uh, A lot of the more mysterious trappings were kind of not so much pushed to the side, but maybe put on the back burner to do a uh, like a monster of the week sort of a format there for a little bit toward the end. So I kind of lost interest, but I had found a deep appreciation for the character and decided that I was going to start working my way back here. Hulk was going to be one of those books that I would have every issue of. Uh, from the day I was born, and just just like we talked about with the Fantastic Four last episode, and that was a goal that I'd set, and it's a it's a goal that I met because um, as I would I, w- I don't want to say as luck would have it because this was not a good thing. We had a chain of comic stores out here in the Phoenix area uh, called Atomic Comics. Now, if you uh, are familiar with like Wizard Magazine, you've probably seen their ads during the '90s here. They're a pretty big pretty big operation. There were like three or four locations out here. And, uh, well, they they started, like, slashing and burning their uh, back issue prices. So, like, you'd walk in there and the guy would be like, yeah, everything in the back issue bin is 90% off. You know, it's like, ooh, well, that's great news for me in the, in the immediate, but what does that mean for the store? And, indeed, it meant the store was going out of business, and uh, they just didn't bother to tell anyone until they were, you know, the locks were already on the door. But during this huge sale uh, that lasted... Like an entire summer, I had bought, uh, basically, I'd backfilled everything I needed from uh, from a lot of series, but the Hulk is one of those series, is, is, is. and uh, the Peter David run would become something of a comfort food for me, and I would read it every single year. Uh, every year I would read through the entire Peter David run, uh, with a particular appreciation for the uh, Pantheon era, which... I mean, I look at the Pantheon era, and the first time I saw Pantheon was in a Marvel trading card. And they were they had a rookie card, and it looked like the most boring thing I'd ever imagined wanting to read. And uh, 
when I finally did read it, I was just blown away by it. I thought it was the the best characterization of the Hulk. It's it's the Hulk that everybody likes to call the Professor Hulk, which I I hate that name. I feel like that is such a lousy name. I I I, I think about that as uh, like the perfect amalgamation of Bruce Banner and the Hulk. You, know, you have Banner's mind, the Hulk's strength. He was a master strategist. He was leading the Pantheon for a bit there. I, I just thought that was a really, really good take on him. And it's one that I remember hearing a lot of folks saying that uh, he was basically green-skinned Superman at this point. And uh, it's a little hard to argue, but I, I enjoyed it for what it was. I, I thought that the the cast around him at that point was really, really strong. You had Rick and Marlowe, who you know kept dying, and you had uh, uh, Betty, who had... Uh, Kinda, kinda had a change in her personality. Um, we had found out about her ex-husband, and just really, really strong stuff. Um, definitely a, a favorite. And if you haven't read the uh, Peter David run here, and you have, you know, an extra several weeks, because <laughs> uh, it was a 12, 12 year run, I believe. So it's a lot of books, a lot of books. So if you have the opportunity, I, I definitely suggest you do so. But I, I'd gone back and I'd backfilled And I kept up with the book too So Peter David did come back with a, Oh boy, it was like Tempest Fugit I believe was the story that he came back with And that took us into uh, Like House of M tie-ins And uh, then we were into Civil War But when, with Civil War uh, The Hulk was launched into, into space And that's when we had Planet Hulk uh, Greg Pak came on did Planet Hulk, Planet Hulk, which I missed out on the first time because uh, this was during one of my uh, streaks of intense poverty. So I did not get that at the time. I had to find that again later. I had to go back and backfill that one. And I enjoyed Planet Hulk. I thought it ran a little long, but I enjoyed it. Uh, World War Hulk, I was completely back on board for. I thought that was a really, really good time. And even the... Uh, the Jeff Loeb stuff, which I know is divisive. Uh, it's kind of divisive, just like the Bruce Jones stuff is divisive. I know people who who really enjoyed the Jeff Loeb stuff, and I know people who have who actually have stopped collecting due to the Jeff Loeb stuff. When I think of Jeff Loeb, um, and I don't think we've had an opportunity to talk about Jeff Loeb on this program. I know I've probably talked about him before on other shows, but I see his work lately... You know, of course, he did, you know, like the long Halloween and stuff like that. But more present day stuff, you have things like the Red Hulk. You have stuff like uh, Avengers X Sanction. You have the Kid Nova series. I always look at the uh, the Jeff Loeb stuff nowadays as like the big budget popcorn movie sort of a feel. And he's always paired with like big bombastic artists, you know, and Ed McGuinness, just muscles upon muscles but like cartoony and, and and appealing you know so i always think of that as uh as being the you know the popcorn movie sort of thing so taking the red hulk stuff as that i, I could appreciate it a lot more than than some might i suppose i i did definitely enjoy that what i didn't so much enjoy was the fact that like everybody in the cast became hulks you know, we had uh, Betty was the Red She-Hulk. We had that other Red She- Oh, we had the other She-Hulk. Um, like the Savage She-Hulk. We had uh, Rick Jones was the A-Bomb. Uh, even Marlowe, I think, was Harpy. You know, I, I, it was just way too much stuff. And I, I thought that was a bit much. Uh, we had the Amadeus Cho stuff, which I did not care for either. 
Uh, we had bits, and I'm, I'm going all out of order here because I conflate a lot of this time. Uh, you know, the, the Marvel Nows, the all-new Marvel Nows, the all-new, all-different Marvel Nows, the other Marvel Nows. They all just seem to happen. I couldn't tell you what order they happened in. I know Marvel Now is the first one. I just couldn't tell you which Marvel Now is the first one. But uh, I remember feeling like Hulk was being... And this isn't the Hulk problem. This is a Marvel problem of the day. All of their heroes were being backburnered in favor of S.H.I.E.L.D. Um, so you'd read something like Indestructible Hulk. And it was basically S.H.I.E.L.D. and Iron Man guest-starring the Hulk. And it really, really turned me off to to everything there. I thought it was just such a disservice to the character and the readership. Because, I mean, in case you don't know, S.H.I.E.L.D. can't, can't really manage to hold on to its own ongoing. Because they're boring. You know, they're not interesting, these characters. So Marvel's answer to that is, hey, let's just put them in every book then. It's the same thing they did with the Inhumans. Which, I mean, the Inhumans can't... They can't have their own book because nobody cares about them So instead, let's just shove them into every book Which <laughs> is wrong-headed at the best of times But I was very turned off by that But, uh, you know, then Secret Wars happened And I kind of just fell off altogether I heard some good buzz about the current Hulk, the Immortal Hulk But we, we've talked about this before but the fellow who writes it is uh, not someone I'd like to support with my money. So I have not read Immortal Hulk. I've heard good things about it. I've heard bad things about it. There are folks whose opinions I really value who said it was the worst thing in the world. And then there's folks whose opinions I really value who said it's the best thing in the world and it's something I should be reading. In a perfect world, I would be. But uh, unfortunately, just like the Fantastic Four, we talked about that last episode with, uh, with Dan Slott. These books became... Can quit you books There were no longer can't quit you books So Them's the breaks I guess uh, I still have all the uh, All the Peter David stuff I could want to read I've got the Bruce Jones run I could wa- I could read if I want I've got the burn stuff if I uh, Am feeling silly <laughs> And wanna Wanna see jo- uh, John Byrne take the Hulk Back to basics by Having him get married Which is very very back to basics for the Hulk but uh, I digress here. Uh, I, I'm a huge fan of the character. Um, it's a shame that I can't read him nowadays. But uh, I have many, many fond memories and uh, about two and a half long boxes full of Hulk stuff. So big fan of the character. So it's interesting to see him here in this issue that we're going to be getting into of Juggernaut. So I'll quit vamping and we will get right into it. This is Juggernaut Volume 3, Number 2. At a December 2020 cover date, the story is How Green Is My Valley? Written by Fabian Nicieso with art by Ron Garney. Colors Matt Miller, letters VCs Joe Sabino, edits Robinson Bisa White Sabolski. Cover price $3.99, went on sale October 21, 2020. Now we open with, uh, well, not quite an info page, but a uh, very purple, in the prose sense, uh, comparison of the Hulk and the Juggernaut. Uh, the page, it, it, while being purple in prose, is green in text. Oh, and also, we get a note that this story takes place before Immortal Hulk number 30. Because uh, we wouldn't dare disrupt uh, the delicate genius Al Ewing's opus. And you know, it would be nice if the ex-office worried about where actual ex-stories fit. And maybe leave us a note every now and again. I'm thinking back to how we... Uh, we got a very Kitty Pride focused X-Men plus Fantastic Four miniseries while Kitty was dead. 
Um, and and you know, uh, how about where did where did that empire cash in fit in? Did the dawn of X story right? Where did that happen? Eh, who cares, right? But we will pinpoint this issue of Juggernaut as fitting into Immortal Hulk's story. I guess we know what matters. Anyway, our story content begins with the Hulk and Juggernaut already duking it out. From here, we flash back to the ending of last issue, which we learned took place about two weeks ago. You know, with a D-Cell telling Kane about the Hulk's rampage. The whole idea here is that Kane takes out the Hulk, right? Kane will beat up the Hulk, who is evidently back to being a threat, while D-Cell films it in order to prove that he's an actual good guy. Kane, of course. And not a bad good guy or a good bad guy. An actual good good guy. And also, you know, a celebrity. Because, uh, you know, they will film this for the internet. From here, we head into the fight, and Juggernaut leaps toward the Hulk and winds up smashing into a mountain. D-Cell is narrating this via her live stream on U-Rocks or whatever. She comments that, uh, you know, she could have used her deceleration powers to, sh- to slow Juggy's mountainside faceplant, but Kane Marco is, quote, mad tough and doesn't need her help. And we see a bit more of Hulk and Juggernaut slapping meat here. Kane slips back into flashback land and gives us our ex-relevant page for the issue. This is right after he'd returned from limbo. He's in a hospital bed, and he's being visited by a telepathic projection of his stepbrother, Charles Francis Xavier. Now, Kane takes this as a sign that he's been invited to move to Krakoa so he can rejoin the X-Men. But Chuck tells him that that's not the case at all. You see, Kane's not a mutant, and so he's not welcome to even step foot on Krakoa. Xavier tells Kane that he believes in him before leaving, and, uh, wow, what a guy. Back to the fight. Now, you'll have to forgive some of my current-year Hulk ignorance here. Just like with Fantastic Four, I do not have all the context I might need to get the most out of this. Now, he, the Hulk, that is, keeps referring to all the bad stuff he's done as being the fault of, quote, the big guy. I'm just spitballing here, but is the current gimmick that Bruce Banner's brain is back in control? But, like, instead of being a timid genius, he's now just a complete dick? That's the feeling I'm getting here, though I could be completely misreading it. It'd be nice to get some context, right? I mean, maybe an editorial note? But we don't. Though, uh, make damn sure you read this before Immortal Hulk number 30. That's what's important. That's what's important. We don't need these juggernaut readers, these X-fans to know a damn thing. But, if you're a Hulk person, hey, read this before Immortal Hulk 30, damn it. Okay, now D-Cell gets involved and uses her powers to slow the green guy down. Then they use a bit of wonky physics to have Juggernaut launch toward the Hulk and level him with a KO shot. We jump back to flashback land, and it's a few months ago. Kane's in Budapest being given a tour of the catacombs. There, he is shown the banished deity, Sidorak, and the new armor that he's currently wearing, so we might assume that this is where he got resuited up. Back to the present, and the Hulk is in a containment unit with a big old grin on his face. Now, this is a bit weird. Okay, he's captured, right? But his captors know that they won't be able to hold him long. Basically, they'll be able to hold him just as long as the Hulk allows them to. And these are just ordinary folks here. Uh, This isn't like a long-term incarceration, and they know that they can't even kill the Hulk, so it's not like he's in any sort of danger. He's here... You see, so the people whose lives he affected can basically yell at him. They can yell in his direction. 
And so, over the course of a couple of pages, he gets to hear all about all the bad stuff he's done. And upon hearing this, he continues to smile. Finally, though, he's had enough, and he just smashes himself out of the cell here. Not in a violent way, really. I mean, it's just a, okay, I'm done listening, you know. Uh, Kane juggernauts up in order to resume their battle, only there ain't gonna be one. The Hulk just wants to know if anyone present works for Roxxon. One dude raises his hand, says he works at a Roxxon gas station, but the Hulk is clearly looking for bigger fish than that. He then turns his attention to the Juggernaut and pretty much calls him out as a hypocrite. I mean, sure, the Hulk's done some bad stuff, but it was, quote, the big guy who did it, a pea-brained monster. The Juggernaut, however, has knowingly done all the bad stuff that he has done. Hulk then excuses himself and calmly walks away, leaving the Juggernaut with a harsh dose of reality and a whole lot of guilt, which he thinks on for a little bit. We wrap up with the Juggernaut and D-Cell landing in Manhattan, where Kane is met with a summons to appear in court. You see, he's being sued for the bankruptcy of a construction company to the tune of 25 million bucks. And that's that. Next episode, thanks to uh, a very long drive, Juggernaut number three. But let's talk about what we got here, um, which was a pretty good issue. I enjoyed it quite a bit. I really appreciated the characterization of the Juggernaut here. Um, I can totally appreciate the juxtaposition between the, beha- the behaviors of the Hulk and Kane, and just how in control each of them actually are in their given situations. You know, the Hulk gets to he gets to assuage his guilt by blaming things on this big guy, right? Juggernaut was a villain for a long, long time. You know, smashing through stuff, beating people up, <laughs> just. He was a bad dude, and he was completely under control. I mean, there were times where he was under someone else's control, but uh, for the most part, he had free will. He just chose to be a bad guy. The Hulk really is more of a chaotic force of nature than a well or ill-meaning individual, right? Uh, I, I think that that's a really cool comparison here. Though... This issue would have been helped a whole lot by giving us a little bit of context for the, the Hulk's current status quo. All we get here are some vague hints about a big guy, which, I mean, I'm assuming means that the, he's talking about the, the pea-brained Hulk, the monster Hulk, uh, rather than, I'm assuming Banner's in control now because he can speak eloquently <laughs> and reason. But uh, again, I don't know, which is a failing of the issue. This really should have been here, if not in the script, there should have been there should have been editorial notes. Like, oh, this is the Hulk story now. Hey, does this seem interesting to you? Now you can check out Immortal Hulk. This is the kind of stuff you'll get. Instead, they just take for granted that we're already reading the Immortal Hulk, which, again, tells you how much they value this miniseries. This miniseries feels like an afterthought, you know? Um, you gotta figure... This is being touted as an X-Men book. It was on our checklist, our Dawn of X checklist. At least the first issue was. So maybe, hey Marvel, assume that maybe just X-Men fans might be reading this. Maybe X-Men completionists are trying to give you their money and you're not giving them all the information they need to appreciate a story. I feel like that's a a missed opportunity. Um, And had the Hulk been portrayed a little bit better here, given a little bit more depth... Maybe you would have gained some readers to the uh, to the Immortal Hulk book. Frankly, I'm I mean even if I even if I didn't have my biases about that book, 
this would not have convinced me to check it out. No matter how much love I have for the character, no matter what curiosity I might have for uh, for current year Hulk, this wouldn't uh, this wouldn't have swayed me. This really wouldn't have swayed me. Um, another thing that wouldn't sway me, I'm still not a fan of the social media stuff with a uh, cell live streaming and all this stuff. I do understand that I'm kind of shouting into the wind right now about this. This is what it is, you know. There's a young character. That's that's what young people do. That said, I'm not completely sold on Cell as a character because she seems like another young character that Marvel's introducing. Who, if the pattern of behavior is to be uh, repeated, I figure she'll probably just spend most of her time on panel saying how cool she is, or being told how cool she is by everyone around her. That seems to be the uh, the method of operations for young characters at Marvel ever since, like, what, 2010 or so? It's just young, sarcastic, snarky hero talking about how cool they are or being told just how cool they are. Maybe she'll surprise me. Maybe she won't. Um, I guess we'll, uh, we'll find out as we continue through this series. Uh, one thing I loved, the art. The art was very, very good. It's definitely a different style for Garney, but I think it really suits the story very, very well. And again, the story, the the juxtaposition between the Hulk and Juggernaut, very, very well done. I have no complaints there. I, I really did enjoy this. I just wish I had a little bit more context for it, and maybe we toned down a little bit of the social media stuff, but that's just Chris' problems. That is not a problem with the story, the nuts and bolts. And if you are reading Immortal Hulk and you do read this one before, remember, before Immortal Hulk number 30, you have to read this one, you'll probably get a lot out of it. So at least in that regard, it's a success. But I am looking forward to more, which, I mean, what more can you ask for from a from a current year comic uh, than wanting to continue the story? So net positive on this one. Um, if you're not reading Juggernaut, well, you'll probably be able to find it online. But I don't know if you'll be able to find physical copies of it without... Uh, Without putting a lot of miles on your vehicle. But those are my thoughts for Juggernaut number two. Let's head into the mailbag before we cut out of here. We're going to check in with Damien, who's talking about the penultimate chapter of X of Swords here, Excalibur number 15. Now, Damien says, You've mentioned before that the last three parts of X of Tens were released on the same day, and it's notable that my reaction to them on that day was very different to the one I'm having rereading along with you. This issue of Excalibur is much worse when it's divorced from the other two books. I don't quite understand how, but it feels like there are missing scenes. Yup. We need an explanation of the fact that the Krakoans won the contest of champions, and that Annihilation is breaking the terms of the contest by continuing to fight. If the Krakoans are not declared the winners, how does Storm know she can attack Annihilation without losing the contest? It makes no sense without the clear evidence that the Arakovoyans have cheated. Now, I'm so glad you said that because I had a completely different reaction to that. I, I agree with you 100%. It feels like we missed something. That is the that is the cliche. That's the meme with Excalibur now. Every time I open an issue of Excalibur, it's like, oh, am, right, am I reading the right book? Because it's just so disjointed. But I didn't take this as the Krakoans winning. I took... When I saw Annihilation, or Genesis put on the Annihilation helmet... I assumed that the fight was going to continue. I assumed that the fight wasn't over. I thought it was phase two of the of the big boss fight, you know. Uh, and I don't remember if was Genesis the champion of Araco or was it Annihilation. I don't remember if it was 
if if Saturnine had specified which one was going to be the champion here, since I mean they're the same person in a way, but they're also different people in a way. So I thought I took it as okay, this is the continuation of the fight, and uh, rather than Annihilation just doing one on one, just called all the Amenthi demons in, and that just let the X Men do their thing. Very weird, <laughs> very weird. But uh, I think you're you're take is probably more accurate than mine. <laughs> it's just a uh, it should have been clearer though. It definitely should have been clearer. Uh, Damien continues. There are some weird character moments. Why is Iska the Unbeaten so bloodthirsty? The character we saw in Marauders doesn't want to kill every Krakoan just for fun, and the Doug and Bay stuff feels really forced. I was astounded when Duggan and Nodo made them seem like a true couple in cable, but that really doesn't come off here. In a way, it feels like a misjudged comedy bit. And you're right. And you're right. And it's funny, I was trying to think of who they reminded me of, and it hit me after I'd stopped recording, unfortunately. Uh, They remind me of a twisted... This is Bay and Doug, of course. They they remind me of this twisted, uh, like, Mr. Miracle and, and Big Barda. Where, like, and going back to, like, the, the, the comedy stuff, the J.M.D. Mateus uh, late 80s ongoing, where Scott was kind of, Scott Free was kind of a henpecked husband, uh, Bardo was, like, this domineering wife. That's how I saw them, and that really, really rings true that the, this is a, this feels like comedy. And, uh, I mean, we've talked about Hickman's swings and misses when it comes to comedy. I guess uh, Teeny Howard has uh, the same uh, the same earned run average when it comes to swinging for a joke here. When you called it, Duggan and Noto really made them feel legit uh, back in uh, back in that issue of Cable, where here it feels very very superficial and just doesn't really work. As for Iska being so bloodthirsty, another great point. It's almost as though the that maybe maybe Teeny didn't read the dinner party scene. I don't know, because uh, that was a very different character. That was a very different character during the two-part uh, dinner party scene. Don't know. Damien continues. There was also lots of stuff I loved. I liked the revelation that Saturnine's entire plan was to create the Captain Britain Corps. It makes sense that having a representative in every plane of reality would be a position of power that she would seek. The idea that she needed a pure heart shattered in time of greatest need as part of her spell also explains why she couldn't perform the spell unless there was a crisis. Of course, my usual refrain is that I prefer to have this kind of information drip-fed to me over months rather than revealed in the penultimate episode of a massive crossover. But I think we've established that I've lost that battle. Well, you and me both, my friend. <laughs> I, uh, I have that same refrain, you know? Um, so many of these things... I mean, it just makes it makes everything feel like it was decided on in the very last minute, and it's it's one of those things that I think we're just supposed to accept. And uh, I, I've made I've made references to this before in, in other things that I've read. It's like it's like if you're trying to pull a gotcha, you need to you need to seed these mysteries. You need to seed these ideas. You're not getting one past the goalie if you keep it a secret, like a secret that isn't even possible to decode. Until the 11th hour here and be like, oh, by the way, this is why we did that. It's like, okay, genius? Uh, maybe, no? No, <laughs> I don't know. Feels very, very weak. Uh, Damien continues. 
I love the use of Jubilee in this issue. Of course, she would team up with any group who were focused on protecting her son and would get them to help the Krakoans whenever possible, or wherever possible. I don't know why, but I love when I see previous sidekicks develop into great leaders. See also Kitty. Maybe with no Betsy, we can see Jubilee step up to be the leader of Excalibur. That's a possibility. And while I do really, really love Jubilee... It just felt like uh, another layer on the Dagwood sandwich that this uh, crossover had become. It's just like, oh god, more characters? It's it's like, aren't we almost done? There's only like 30 pages left, and we're dropping all these new characters in here. It was just... It felt like it... uh, It kind of screamed to me as though... I mean, this was an issue of Excalibur. Uh, X of Tens was basically an Excalibur story, which was blown up to usurp the entire line. It stunk to me of Teeny Howard just getting her stuff in. You know, it's like, okay, these are my characters that I need to steward. So they're getting in there. When I feel like maybe the other writers played ball a little bit better. You know, you didn't see Jerry Duggan shoehorning Bishop into an issue of Marauders. You didn't see him putting Pyro or Iceman in there. He knew what the game was. He knew that the hand that he was dealt. And it's like, okay, well, I have Storm. What can I do with Storm? You know, and, and Wolverine hangs out with the team too, so what can I do with Wolverine? Uh, ben Percy wasn't jamming Domino and Colossus into the book, right? Um, X-Factor. Uh, Leah, Leah Williams only had Polaris in the book. We weren't seeing Dakin Dakin or Aurora or Northstar. But here in Excalibur, it's like, oh, i got to make sure all my characters are in here. <laughs> it just really didn't sit well with me, especially when I don't think it added all that much. Um... Everything was kind of a gimmick It's like, okay, well we need the dragon Shogo So he can breathe the reality fire And um, and just remove everybody from the playing field That we don't need anymore It's it, <laughs> This is a really obscure reference here But if anybody out there has played the old Nintendo game uh, Princess Tomato and the Salad Kingdom It's an adventure game Like a point and click sort of a thing here Where if you play point-and-click games, you know if you see an item, you pick it up, just in case you're going to need it, right? So you see a screwdriver, you pick it up. You see a diamond, you pick it up. You see a carrot, you pick it up. No matter what you see, you pick it up. Well, in between the uh, chapters of that game, you have this sidekick, and he accidentally loses everything you will never need again. So he's like, oops, I lost, I lost everything. Because you're not going to need it in the next chapter Shogo's Dragonfire felt like that It's like, okay, well we don't need all of these characters So blow the fire and just leave us with what we need Didn't really work for me Didn't really work for me Um, Damien continues I also like the Annihilation and Apocalypse elements of the story Annihilation is terrifying Mahmoud Azrar produced truly menacing pages When she was declaring her intention to conquer everywhere Teeny Howard really brought her A-game to that dialogue It was poetic and evil, just perfect. They also sold me on Apocalypse's feelings for Genesis. He he behaved like someone who has found and then lost their true love. That'll give you. That'll give you. uh, Despite the the balloons being a little difficult to read because they were white on black and uh, letters were kind of thin, the dialogue was especially strong there. And I really can't believe how sympathetic a character they turned Apocalypse into, which... I mean, that's a good thing and a bad thing, since he was sort of a focal point of this series and and story, but I wonder how, if or when, he he comes back, and is he going to ever be a viable villain again? You know, I'm sure, 
I mean, he's apocalypse. Like he can't be a hero or a or a good guy forever, right? But we'll find out. Damien continues. On the whole, I still want I still wind up po- generally positive on this issue, but looking at it in isolation really does damage it compared to reading it swiftly, desperate to click on to the next part. And that's true, and, and that's something that I've talked about several times about being part of the uh, X-lapsed uh, process problem, right? The method of X-lapsed is uh, kind of problematic and um, challenging because, like you, like you said it here, reading it swiftly, I think that's what we're supposed to do. And meanwhile, I'm spending, you know, upwards of five hours with each issue, which... You, you know, when, if you think seems show when you're reading it quickly, uh, when you actually spend a greater portion of your free time with a with a single book, those seems really really show. You can almost see through them sometimes. So, yeah, it's definitely a problem with the method that I've approached this with. But um, I mean, every comic in theory should be able to stand on its own, and this one, I would imagine, would have been really really good reading it just quick quick quick. But when you stop and look at it as its own thing here And you don't You know, it wasn't just a minute after you read X-Men number 15 And it wasn't just a minute before you read Destruction It's just sort of its own thing And it's kind of all over the place Now Damien wraps up with Anyway, until Excalibur crosses over with the Punisher And Saturnine casts a love spell with a different kind of jigsaw Make mine X-lapsed Well, you know, if the Punisher wants Saturnine He can have her Let's send the Punisher to Otherworld and maybe keep our guys back on the on Krakoa, or maybe send him send him anywhere. <laughs> Put him back in New York. Put him in San Francisco again. Put him in uh, Angel's Airy in New Mexico. I don't care. Just uh, not Otherworld, please, not Otherworld. But thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on that penultimate chapter. I look forward to hearing your thoughts on uh, Destruction uh, very very soon. We've also got a message from Evan talking about Uncanny X-Men Annual number one from 2019. This was uh, episode eight of X-Lapstination. Now, Evan says, Enjoyed listening to the episode on Uncanny Annual number one while waiting for the rest of X of Tens to drop on Marvel Unlimited. I thought it was a good way to bring Cyclops back and get him back into a more heroic light. Your solution, pluck him away before the Terrigan cloud rolls through, was much simpler. But even in the age of decompression, that wouldn't have filled an issue. And maybe keeping Cyclops alive would have made for a worse outcome. Maybe he had to be taken off the board for longer. And maybe he needed that time to get his mind right thanks to Kid Cyclops' memories returning. Now, the what Evan's talking about there is Cable had, Kid Cable had set it up so Cyclops would save a guy's life as when he was younger. And then that guy would be able to save Cyclops' life by crafting a phoenix box... Uh, Phoenix case, cage Phoenix cage, I think they called it Which would be implanted in Scott's dead body So that when, during Phoenix Resurrection He's brought back briefly The Phoenix's power would, like, reach Jumpstart his heart So he would be able to come back here And all that is wonderfully convoluted And very, very comic booky. And I appreciate it for what it was I was just thinking, like my My idea was And it wasn't even an idea so much As just an observation that if we're just playing with the time stream anyway, why not just pluck him out, you know? Um, I wasn't even like a serious suggestion. It was just a devil's advocate sort of thing. It's like, why did we go through all this trouble when he could have just done it easily? And I think Evan's right on the money here. I think Cyclops needed to be gone for a bit. 
because uh, everyone else had to evolve the way they were going to evolve without without his uh, influence. And also, um, all the original five time-displaced kids, they got to keep their memories. Uh, when the time loop closed, all those memories came flooding back. Therefore, you know, grown-up Cyclops would now have young Cyclops' memories from his time as a time-displaced mutant. And that's something we'll be talking about much more during a uh, brief look at Champions in the not-so-distant future, because Kid Cyclops was a member of the Champions team, and, uh, well, he's going to be teaming up with them briefly again as an adult, so that'll be interesting to talk about. Now, Evan continues. He was subject to the same temporary mind wipe as the other five at the end of Extermination, so those memories wouldn't have been accessible to him until after he came back from this for the second time. Phoenix Resurrection was pre-extermination. I don't. Th- I didn't think of this while reading it, but maybe Cable's test was to see if the memories came back. Maybe the reason Cyclops was able to chill out was because he had the memories of his younger self, seeing how bat crap crazy he had become. Would ultra militant Cyclops have put the life of a non-mutant over the X-Men? <laughs> that is another great point here, and uh, I definitely think that could have been told better in the book. What Evan's referring to, if you haven't listened to that episode, or if you haven't read Uncanny Annual Number 1, uh, like the fifth Uncanny Annual Number 1, uh, Cable orchestrates even more. He orchestrates some stuff in the present day where Cyclops has to make a choice between... Well, he's going to make a choice on how he re-debuts. So he's back to life. The fellow who helped bring him back to life, his family's in danger. And also, the X-Men are in danger because they're fighting off X-Men and they're about to be swept off into the Age of X-Men over in the main Uncanny X-Men series. So Cyclops is presented with two options here. Does he help this non-mutant Paul Duick who helped him, who brought him back to life, or does he help the X-Men? And I think Evan might be right on the money here because before he came back, he was all, he was all about uh, being a mutant revolutionary. So he definitely would have helped the X-Men without a second thought. Paul Duick would have just been, you know, cannon fodder. His whole family would have just been dead. Where maybe this was a way to see if the memories did in fact come back. Because young Scott was pretty aghast at Elder Scott and was basically terrified of what he saw himself becoming. So I think... I think I underplayed the young Scott's influence on older Scott, and uh, I think Evan's got this got this one right on the money here. I just wish it was better presented in the book here, uh, where, I mean, right now we're filling all this stuff in in our heads, and I, I don't think we should have had to do that. Now, uh, Evan continues, Come to think of it, would most of the population of Krakoa do that now? They aren't Brotherhood of Evil Mutants level, but there is an air of superiority around them. Huh. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? We've talked a little bit about um, the mutant or Krakoan ethnocentrism of late, right? Where it's, you know, for the people and everyone else can go pound salt. So that is quite a, an interesting thing here where just not, not too long ago, this is 2019. So probably, boy, six, seven months before Hoxbox. Where we're having Cyclops choose a non-mutant over the mutant And now, I mean, everybody in Krakoa is rah-rah mutant Everyone else can, you know, suck eggs You know, it's, it's interesting 
Uh, Evan wraps up with, or maybe Cable just wanted to make sure the person who came back was really his dad. And since Storm wasn't yet asking naked people personal questions before leading big culty chants, he had to improvise. That's always a possibility. When you don't have Storm to interview de- uh, naked people, you, <laughs> you need to you need to work with what you got. So, uh, and Kid Cable's still young yet, so he was just doing everything he could there. But uh, <laughs> I want to thank you so much for uh, for giving me your thoughts on Uncanny Annual Number One and for listening to the entire X Lapsination uh, series there. Uh, that series is available on xlapsed.chrisoninfiniteearth.com in its entirety. Also, you know, everywhere you find. Uh, my stuff, uh, Apple, Stitcher, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, yada, 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 all those places. Um, so if you want to hear x the Nation, it's there, all eight episodes. But that is where we will put a pin in the mailbag for today. If anybody would like to write in and be a part of the mailbag, please feel free to do so. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics or shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. Also, the aforementioned xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can chat up our little group on Facebook. It's 90s X-Men, where I just posed a question about other X-Men appearances in the wider Marvel Universe, asking for some help in pointing me in the direction to cover, uh, you know, books like this, books like Fantastic 426, books like The Champions and Runaways that we'll be getting to, books like Gwenpool. All that sort of stuff here that uh, anything you feel like is uh, worthy of devoting an episode to, just let me know and we will definitely do that. You can listen to all the Chris and Reggie audio over at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Well, that'll do it for today. Uh, Juggernaut 2 out of the way, Juggernaut 3 next episode. I want to thank you all so, so much for sharing your time with me today. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. Thank you.